Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm conscious. I'm listening to the players crash into each other above me. The whistle blows, the pile clears off. I keep telling myself, Chris, get up. It felt just like any other football play, any other tackle, but I can't move and I'm just waiting for my movement and feeling to come back, but it didn't. I had no idea that I had suffered a severe spinal cord injury. Life is a journey and most of it is spent in the in-between, in the middle places. But every once in a while, you find yourself on the other side of something. These are the stories we are telling here. We believe that stories change the world. And we hope that when you hear stories of lives changed, obstacles overcome, lives broken, lives mended, and hope found, you'll actually see yourself in their stories. Now more than ever, we need each other and we need each other's stories. This is On the Other Side. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. We're your hosts. Aaron and Jamie Ivy, and we have an incredible story to share with you today. We interviewed Chris Norton, and Chris is a former defensive back who played Division Three football. His football career, though, ended in 2010 when he became paralyzed while making a tackle during a kickoff in a game. He was given a 3% chance of ever regaining movement below the neck, but has continued to recover some sensation and mobility throughout his body, including his hands, legs, feet, and torso. We talked to Chris today about that game, and he walks us through what happened. And then we talk about what it has looked like to rehab after. And I hate to spoil the end, but I think you might already know that he did regain some mobility and, in fact, walked across the stage to receive his diploma and then walked his wife down the aisle. It's a story of perseverance. It's a story of beating all kinds of odds. And it's a story of hope. We're excited to share our interview with Chris with you. We're so happy to have you on we here. We are, man. So uh, happy to have you. I was you. telling Aaron before we started that I got the chance to watch your documentary that's on Netflix and was just so inspired by your story that I knew that we wanted to sit down and have a conversation with you. So this is uh, this is our pleasure for sure. You have a phenomenal story, man, and your family's beautiful. We're going to get into all of that. Maybe a good place to start, you know, in 2010 is where a lot of your story kind of changed. Can you just talk us through a little bit of, of what happened in 2010 in your life? Yeah, so it's October 16, 2010. I'm a 18-year-old freshman sixth game of the season. It's a beautiful fall day. I'm playing college football at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, really small school, small town. I run out to the field for the kickoff. The kicker kicks the ball off. I'm sprinting downfield as hard as I can go. My job is to tackle the ball carrier. I want to drive my shoulder so hard through his legs that he'll drop the ball. I'm running. I see this opening for me. My instincts are telling me, okay, he's going to run through that gap. I'm going to stop him. 
I go for it. I collide with them at full speed, full force, but I mistime my tackle just by a split second. Mm. Instead of getting my head in front of the ball carrier, his knees struck me right in the side of the neck. In an instant, I lose all feeling and movement from my neck down. I'm conscious. I'm listening to the players crash into each other above me. The whistle blows. The pile clears off, but I can't. I'm trying so hard to push off the ground, but nothing Mm -hmm. is working. It feels like someone just flipped the power off to my body. I can tell the game stopped for me. Everyone is waiting for me to get up. I keep telling myself, Chris, get up. It felt Mm -hmm. just like any other football play, any other tackle, but I can't move. And I'm just waiting for my movement and feeling to come back, but it didn't. I had no idea that I had suffered a severe spinal cord injury. So when you're sitting there waiting, and I've never heard it described that way, I didn't know that you were conscious. You know, I imagine like you're completely out of it. You know what's going on. you wake up in the hospital. Right, right. To know that you're laying there, willing your body to get up and move, and the players come on, and then they they take you to the hospital. When was the first time that you heard about your injury? When I get to the hospital, they explain spinal cord injury – they actually tell me too that I have a 3% chance to ever regain any feeling or movement below the neck. Unreal. Yeah, that's not a 3% chance to walk. That's a 3% chance to move or feel a thing. A 3% chance to scratch an inch on your face, to feed yourself. There's so much more to a spinal cord injury, especially as high as mine, than just walking. That's what Mm. everybody gets caught up with is the walking part, but there's so much more that Mm. I lost. Mm. So they tell you this and they say you have a 3% chance. And then I'm assuming that you go into immediate to to surgery. Yep. Go into surgery, wake up the next day, blurry eyed, groggy thinking, what just happened? I just had the worst nightmare of my life, but then the, surgeon comes in, comes in and confirms my nightmare is now my new reality. Mm. He confirms that 3% prognosis, processing that number. I, it was like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Because the day before, I was walking. You were, Yeah, beautiful was, day, yeah, football. I was suiting up for my college football game, and then all of a sudden, I'm in the hospital, paralyzed from the neck down with a 3% chance to ever move. It was numb at first to it as I'm I'm trying to come to grips. (laughs) And then I get mad. Mm. I tell myself, no way, not me. This is not going to be my life. I'm going to beat the odds. I will not be that 97% who don't recover from this. I will do whatever it takes to be a member of that 3%. I get going to work right away. The only thing I could do, which was to nod my head yes and no. I would nod my head yes and no for hours. And after I was able to do that for better, I started shrugging my shoulder, beating the 3% odds. I kept finding Mm. ways of how can I escape this horrific situation and get back to my life. Mm. What did your family and your friends um, think in that moment when they hear 3%, you know, was the overall vibe like, no, he's going to be the 97%? Was it a vibe of like, man, I don't know, he's going to be the three? Like, what what, what was everybody's kind of like 
perception of the whole thing? Thankfully, my family has the same sort of stubbornness grit yeah. that I have. They Come were on. all for, okay, there's a 3%. We're mm. going to be that 3%. We will do mm. whatever it takes. Like I had a, a team around me of this positivity and this faith that we are going to get through this. We, Yeah, we're going to figure it out. Mm. Chris, have you seen that movie Dumb and Dumber? Oh, yeah. Love that movie. Isn't it that the movie it's where the they best. so where the where <laughs> yes. so you're saying there's, there's a, a chance. chance. Yes, <laughs> this is what I keep that. thinking of. Mm-hmm. Is like I keep imagining you being like, so you're saying there's a chance, and you're just gonna go for it. That kind of drive, man, that you're explaining. Had you always had that kind of drive? Was that like common through like childhood and even high school? I did. I would say I always had this resilience to me, and I really attribute that to my dad and growing up because I loved competition. But while I loved competition, I wasn't the best athlete. I can remember one weekend in this basketball tournament. I had the worst weekend of basketball in my life. I'm on my way home, I'm fighting back to tears, so disappointed. I knew I could do better. And to make matters worse, I had to ride home with my coach. My coach was my dad. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so as the coach's kid, you have that extra pressure. I get home, I kick my shoes off, I go to the couch to try to distract myself from my frustration and from being this poor basketball player. I'm watching TV, playing video games, probably a bag of chips if I remember right. And then finally my dad, he comes up to me. He says, Chris, if you don't like where you're at, then do something about it. Hmm. I don't know what it was, but those words, it clicked. Hmm. Why am I feeling sorry for myself when I'm not doing anything to change the outcome. Like, I'm mm. going to continue to be exactly where I'm at as a basketball player unless I go and get better. And so mm. I got up off that couch, I grabbed my basketball and I shot baskets until it was dark. And then I would do ball handling and it just triggered this response system in me of mm. when I don't like this outcome, I'm going to respond. I'm going to do something about it. And it's my responsibility. And essentially my dad taught me yeah. to take yeah radical responsibilities for all of your outcomes for life and the more responsibility you can accept the better you'll respond to adversity and the one of the quickest ways i found to become more adept in taking that ownership for your life and for your success and happiness is to cut out blame the need to complain and really all excuses because uh, these behaviors that keep you emotionally stuck they prevent you from doing all that you can do because blame is not a good strategy for a meaningful yeah. and successful life. Yeah. And so I knew like I'm taking this radical responsibility once I accepted that the only thing I really have control in life is how I respond. Mm. I had no idea as a kid, as that grew in me, how important that would be in my life. Yeah. Absolutely. Chris, I, I'm you know, I've seen some footage of your rehabilitation and man, it looked brutal. And I'm just so curious, like how long that took. And then, you know, what was it like not being in control of your body for your whole life you have been, and then you're having to relearn, you know, how to use your arms and how to stand back up again. Can you talk to us a little bit about the rehabilitation process? Yeah, it was extremely frustrating and discouraging every single day when you're trying to do the most basic tasks ever. When you compare yourself to where you used to be, 
is where I was as an athlete. It was so discouraging then to just try to work on moving my hand to my shoulder. Just trying to get my hand to my shoulder was a complete struggle. I had to have people feed me. It was just all these different little things I couldn't do and I knew how to do it. I knew exactly how it felt and what it's supposed to be like, but no matter how hard you try, it doesn't matter. It's like trying to push through a a brick wall. Um, I just keep pushing, but nothing is happening. So then in the training, it wasn't physically exhausting, at least at first it was mentally exhausting because I have to Mm. concentrate so much on trying to move a finger to Mm -hmm. move a toe. My training started out just to be able to tolerate being in a wheelchair, my blood pressure. I couldn't regulate my blood pressure anymore. Mm -hmm. I had an all hard time breathing. I still have a hard time breathing to this day. I don't have a full laugh, a full cough because your, your spinal cord also controls your strength of your lungs and diaphragm. So I was really trying to do everything. I was trying to strengthen. Yeah. So it was, it was exhausting. Mm. And even initially, your your speaking was affected, right? So you had to even learn how to speak again? It was more so I was speaking softly. Uh, my mm-hmm. brain was completely fine. So I, I could talk. It was just a whisper because yeah. I just didn't have the strength to project it. And even to this day, so I'm going to do motivational keynote speaking. I have sometimes have a hard time with the different AV systems because they have to crank my microphone yeah all the mm. way up and sometimes you get a little bit of feedback the louder it gets but i mm. need all that volume because i just don't have the volume the strength yeah. in the lungs and yeah. diaphragm to project as well as i'd like to yeah chris i know now that you love jesus and you're a man of faith and and i'm, I'm curious as to what that was like for you then but also you know we're talking about this this grit and beating the three percent which you definitely have something in you to help you a, a personality like that but i also want to know what did faith look like for you then and did you walk through moments of of anger at god or how did you deal with your faith aspect of this my faith was really a security blanket for me it was something growing up it was there, but I didn't always live that way. I didn't believe in a strong way. I didn't live my life like that. But thankfully, my parents introduced me to God and learned some lessons, went to church, although they would drag me to church when I wanted to sleep at home <laughs> right. and, and did all those things. Then when I get hurt, I had nothing to rely on. I was always used to relying on myself to get through things or maybe my parents or a friend, and then all of a sudden, I can't really count on anybody for my recovery, but God. And so that's when I really started to pray to God, like, please help me. I, I want to get back to my old life. I want the plans I had for myself to be this all-American football player and get these degrees, have a family. I really wanted that. Like, God, don't change my plans. But you know, little did I know, God had a greater plan for me than the plan. I had for myself, but I had a, a wrestle with that faith because I also know in the Bible and you know, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that God God has plans to prosper you to not to harm you and plans for a future. But as I'm lying there in the hospital with I can't move a thing, how's this plans to prosper me? How are you going to use this for good? So I had a lot of questioning, some anger. Where are you, God? Are you really? 
doing what you say you can do. And I, I fought with that at times. Mm. Uh, thankfully, I had my dad and my family there. They were reading scripture from the Bible and sending me encouraging messages to hold on to that faith. I ultimately did kept choosing my faith over fear. That's a battle yeah. we all have to go through and something we have to make that choice every day, really. But I just kept believing that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel with God. and Maybe he can do something with this, like mm. it says in the Bible. So let's find out because yeah. honestly, I don't want to know the alternative. This is yeah. certainly better than any alternative of what I'm feeling and what the doctors are telling me. So I'm going right. to choose faith, although it doesn't make sense. I can't see it right now, but that's what I'm going to go for. And that's really what faith is all about. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Okay, so this happened in October of 2010. Then in 2011, you moved back to, to your hometown. Uh, and you actually moved back in with some college buddies at, at the dorm. And you're continuing school. Which when I was watching the film, I was like, this guy is unstoppable. Like, he's like, I'm just going to go back and live with my buddies in the dorm. And it was so wonderful. But you had one goal at that time. I, I know we'll talk about the other goals that you created. But you wanted to walk across the stage to get your diploma from your university. And so when did you decide that? And what was that journey like getting there to actually walk across the stage with a 3% chance of ever moving your body again? Well, it was a, a slow and steady uh, progression. And I just kept trying to focus on you know, one day at a time, knowing that your future will take care of itself when you take care of today. And so I just kept thinking about, okay, what can I do today? Just get a little bit better, do that one extra thing, one extra step that will help kind of build that momentum to that goal. And it wasn't easy going back to campus. I had my family, I had my friends, everybody kind of encouraged me, pushing me, like, hey, we're going to make this work. We'll figure it out. Although I had no idea what that's going to look like. Again, taking a leap of faith to go back to school. But then as I'm working towards walking and get my life back together, walking across the stage just felt right. It was the end of my college you know, career, as you could say. And I began my college pretty much getting injured. And it just kind of gave me a, a milestone to shoot for. Mm -hmm. I just knew it would be special. And on the, along the way, not only did I want to get stronger, but I also wanted to inspire other people. Part of that training meant I would have to spend you know, 46 hours training, but then also doing a full load of classes. So it was sun up to sundown of doing something. Wow. It was, it was de definitely really tough because I can't type. Uh, I know you guys can see my fingers, but I, I don't have dexterity in my fingers. So it's not like I can type a paper which was make, made it really hard in college. I had to use everything through an iPad, which at the time they're not nearly as nice as they are today. Yeah. So right. I had a lot of uphill battles, but it was important to me. I had to figure it out. And when you have a goal that you're excited about and you can envision, and then you, you kind of figure out the rest. Mm. Eventually I met my now wife, Emily, about three years after my injury while I was in college. Emily really came alongside me and made this goal and dream of mine, her goal and dream. And she'd become mm. my toughest trainer. I'm not exaggerating about that. <laughs> Always pushed me to take one more step, do one more mm. thing. And we would practice night after night. We even relocated to go next to this 
special training facility to get ready. So I had no other distractions, but working out to do all of this, just to be able to walk four yards across the graduation stage. Yeah. And as yeah. you, that sounds crazy. And I felt crazy a lot where I'm wondering why am I doing this? Uh, this is mad, like madness, but mm. something in my heart just kept tugging on me to just go for it. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, you could have just said, I'll just wheel across like I yeah. do every day, you know, yeah. but you were determined to do that. And you did walk across that stage. And I loved seeing, you know, in the footage, seeing Emily help you out of the wheelchair and she was with you the entire time. And then is that kind of what launched into like one of your second goals of wanting to walk her down the aisle at your wedding? Yeah, because we had no idea that this graduation walk, four-yard walk, would go viral. I can remember mm -hmm. when I looked up finally, when I got to the end of the stage, got my diploma, everybody's crying. I'm looking around like, what just happened? Like, did, did I miss something? Because <laughs> yeah. I did not expect it to be so emotional for people to see this, this walk. Then that, yeah, went viral, 300 million people, got to go on all these different talk oh, wow. shows. But the most powerful thing was when we received messages from people who are inspired by this mm. walk from all walks of life from all mm. sorts of challenges one in particular that really stood out to me was a mom whose daughter was kidnapped she had been gone for two years they they found her mm. but there was a lot of trauma that they mm. were working through a lot of struggles they were going through as a family but seeing this four-yard walk gave her hope for her daughter's future that mm. maybe wow. you know she can put together some life uh, of meaning and purpose even if it doesn't look like the life you imagine it was going to be when you hear those stories you just inspire inspired me how can i do something else to encourage somebody god clearly did have a plan for me and he's using mm. me how can i use my situation, my life experiences to help somebody else. With that in mind, we have to walk down the aisle of our wedding. And it mm. wasn't for us. Emily could care less if I walked her down the aisle. I could really care less if I walked down the aisle. It's a lot of pressure. And honestly, we didn't yeah. want to do it at first. But when you think of that mom and that family and all the other mm. people who wrote to me, we got to do it for them. Mm. Like they're counting on us. So then it made it worth it to spend, again, the next several years, hours upon hours of training for a walk that I couldn't even walk one step with her mm. on, at my side because we changed positions. We wanted to do the wedding walk side by side, not with her in front mm -hmm. of me. And with her in yeah. front of me, I get a lot of support. But on the side, I don't. I lost a ton of support. So that made it really challenging. But again, it, it was it was worth it. You know, Chris, I find it so interesting with what you just said is that when you said I could care less if I walked down the aisle, Emily could care less if I walked down the aisle, but these people who are so encouraged by it, it matters to them. And that also shows me a lot of your personality as well as this, this grit and this desire, desire to, to beat the 3%, but also you're using what has happened to you, you know, back in October of 2010 to literally be a conduit for hope for other people. And you said earlier when you were in the hospital bed wondering, God, I don't know how you're going to have a plan for me. 
And now when you're looking at your life, you know, 11 years later, do you see the hand of God on all of these moments in your life? Oh my gosh, yes. How, how can you not? It's open doors that hmm. would have never have opened without that injury and that play. So when people ask me, Chris, would you go back and change that play? No way. Absolutely not. Like, how could yeah. I? It's open, like I said, doors that have blessed my life and enriched my life so much that I can't imagine living a different life. While that doesn't mean there aren't moments when I'm frustrated yeah. and angry about wishing I could do more, especially now as you kind of foreshadow as a dad, there's times as a dad where I want to show them how to throw the football. I want right. to teach them how to swing the bat. I want to play with them in the pool, throw them around. I had a really active parents where they're in the pool with me. They're playing with me. My dad coached me every single sport. Even if he never played the sport, they were just really hands-on. I wanted to be that dad. I can't be that dad. I always dreamed about, you know what? It's okay. While that's frustrating mm -hmm. at times, I can be the dad. That's the most important dad, which is a loving present dad somebody that's going to cheer them on be there for them when they need me and so that's the things that i focus on is you know my abilities and not my disabilities what i can do not what i can't do and that's yeah. where my power comes from man I, I love that you're talking about your family now can you tell everybody we talked about emily a little bit but can you tell everybody just what the rest of your family looks like yeah right now we have seven kids we have five adopted daughters uh, the oldest is 22. We have 11, 10, 7, and 5. Then we have a child that we're fostering who's two years old. And then we are co-parenting a seven-year-old that we used to foster. So seven mm. kids is our spread as you can see, 22 to 2 years old. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Now, Chris, what I know from just watching the documentary that I just cannot say enough of people, y'all got to go watch this yeah, documentary, yeah. is that your wife, Emily, uh, you'll have to explain it because it was a very non-traditional route of you guys becoming parents by the fact that Emily was fostering one, if not more of your daughters before you guys were even married. So can you tell us that story? Yeah. Emily and I, we relocated from michigan to florida for my training to get ready for the wedding walk well while we were there emily receives a call from a girl she has always mentored growing up her name is whitley and whitley was the one that introduced emily to the foster care system and it was emily who introduced foster care to me i had no idea what that was all about well Whitley calls she's sobbing and she begs emily and i to take her in as a foster child. She's 17, we're 23, 24 years old hmm. at the time. We talk it over. If we say yes, that's a host of challenges. Am I qualified and ready to be a dad? I just felt really inadequate. You know, we just had all these insecurities and questions about it. But at the end of the day, yeah. we also thought about what if we say no? Hmm. She has, you know, it's had behaviors in the past. You know, will she be able to get through this stage of life if we don't, mm. you know, do something about it? And because no one would want her, she was going to get sent to juvenile detention. 
And so we said we'd do it. And we were her 18th placement. Our goal was to help her feel loved and special, to know that we care about her and she has a place in this world. And we, our ultimate goal is to try to get her to graduate high school on time. She was able to graduate high school on time. But while there was plenty of challenges, we also had so many great moments. She's a great kid. These kids too often get defined by their past and their wrongdoings, their mistakes. They just need a stable and loving home because they're each and every one of them are so precious, so special. And when they're in that stable environment, they really start to flourish and become, come into their own. Yeah. Yeah. So is this your oldest daughter? Yes. And then we eventually adopted her when she was 19. Yes. Yes. And so you guys throughout your marriage, you have had I think I read 18 children through your house. Yeah, we've had 18 foster placements. That's incredible, man. Incredible, incredible. incredible. So, okay, so seven kids right now, you and Emily changing the world, <laughs> you know, right in your community. I, I want to talk to you about being a dad. And you mentioned that a while ago about some of the, the limitations that you've had. How I would like to ask you the same question that I asked you earlier about the your faith when you had your accident. And even the the idea of, I'm not the dad I always dreamed I would be. How have you wrestled through that with God as well? Well, I see the other blessings in my life. And there's always going to be kind of thorns in the side, things that you wish could be better, things that you feel maybe God got wrong, you feel like he got wrong. But these are the things that really you got to switch your focus and your mindset to the things that you are getting what you do have, what you can do. And that's what I'm really intentional about is keeping my mind on those things because your life will follow in the direction of your strongest thoughts. And I know that I have to think about those abilities and the things I do have more than the things that I've lost and, and can't do. So I'm very intentional. So for instance, I have a couple of ones that I'll pay attention to. Like um, I don't have to stand in line. I, everyone's waiting, the legs are hurting, feet are tired, and I'm just chilling in my chair. You know, <laughs> I can never lose a game of musical chairs. I have <laughs> a undefeated record. No one's ever beat uh-huh. me. Plus, you know, I don't feel mosquito bite. Because of my injury, I lost some sensation. So I can have 30 mosquitoes on my legs. I don't feel a thing. It's right. <laughs> um, I have the best parking. Everywhere I go, I have a front row spot. <laughs> waiting for me unfortunately where i live in florida it's really competitive (laughs) so i have a few run-ins there but you know i'm always being very intentional about you know the things that i do have and um, you can always find something in your life to appreciate when you have the Mm. will Mm, so good chris it's been almost 11 years since your accident how is do you have any other medical challenges that you're still are ongoing that you're having to deal with or would you say like oh, i've conquered the the you know the really big ones what does that look like for you medically i mean medically i you know in my body i'm always trying to stay in shape trying to stay strong and healthy because it's really easy to for your muscles and your body to atrophy to kind of lose some mass so I feel like yeah. I've lost you know, some weight that I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to stay on my feet, do some walking and exercise where I can because my workout regimen is not nothing close to what I was doing to get ready for the graduation walk 
or the wedding walk. But something I my priorities have shifted because it's just not a priority for me to walk mm. independently anymore. It used mm. to be. I used to think that was the epitome of mm. happiness and joy, but happiness isn't measured by steps. I yeah, know okay. people who can run, jump, and swim who are unhappy. So clearly, yeah. you know, hmm. happiness has nothing to do with your physical abilities or even wealth, for that matter, and everything yeah. you do with your mindset. And so while I have the struggles like everybody else, I'm just really intentional to work through those things. And as a result, I have a positive attitude. But needless to say, that's health-wise, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm really conscious about that physically and mentally, yeah. but there's no major uh, hiccups or anything that I'm concerned about. Obviously, the, the longevity, maybe not obviously for a lot of people, but the longevity for someone who's a quadriplegic um, is not statistically very good as far as how long they live, but I feel that I'm on top of my health and, and I take care of it. Yeah. Chris, I absolutely love your your perspective, man, on on your life, your perspective on how to help other people. You know, you said one of your goals is to inspire people. I think you know this, but man, you are inspiring people. And I definitely want everyone to watch this documentary. And, you know, it's just a story of like perseverance. It's a story of turning suffering into hope. It's it's just such a great story, man. And it's yours. And we're so thankful that you would share it with us today. Thank you, man. Yeah, of course. I, I think everyone will really enjoy it. It's just, there's always something you can take away from it is what's really neat about it. And the documentary also sheds light on the supporting cast and the people that are mm. instrumental to us all to help us get through life because I couldn't have done this alone. I needed my faith. I needed my family, my friend. I needed Emily. All these people really encouraged me and pushed me. I'm just thankful that this documentary can really shed a light on them too because they're rock stars they are chris thank you so much thanks man yeah thank you for having me so aaron i told you i've seen the documentary and it's so good i cannot tell you enough how much all of you guys should go watch it's on netflix i believe you can even find it on amazon prime and i've only watched the trailer but as soon as i got done watching the trailer i'm like this is the next documentary i have to watch even you even let a uh, story watch it right yeah, Story and I watched it, and it's just beautiful. And he goes through this whole story about his his injury, and then they talk about him walking across the stage, and then his wedding, and there's footage from that. And his wife, Emily, I think I want to know her because I think I would be friends with her. You know, so much of what he talked about was actually taking responsibility for the change that he wanted to see, even in the worst circumstances. And I love how he just even got super practical about taking little small steps, taking like one or two things that you can work on every single day. And those things add up, they stack up to seeing change in your life. That was super inspiring and challenging for me. I agree. And I was so encouraged by just his tenacity and his grit, but also the way faith played a part in his story as well. And, you know, I didn't ask him, but he answered it for us of, would you go back and change that day? And he said, no, because look at his life now. I also was really inspired when he was talking about parenting his kids. And sometimes, you know, I haven't had a, a traumatic spinal cord injury, but I sometimes wonder, am I the best parent for these kids? Because I feel like I'm messing up and I'm failing. I'm doing these things wrong. And I remember a friend told me one time, you are the best parent for your kids because God chose you to be their mom. And I just felt that coming through in Chris's conversation as well, talking about being a dad. We know Chris's story encouraged you and challenged you. Please go check out his documentary called Seven Yards. You can find it on Netflix. 
Today's show was mixed and edited by Aaron Campbell. Show notes were written by Abby Castell. Show graphics and videos were made by Rachel Ray. And the show is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Please share this show with a friend if you loved it. It's how most people find out about podcasts. Thank you for listening to On the Other Side with Jamie and Aaron Ivey. Thank you.